I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I bought it out and I dropped off But I'm, I'm still seeking Welcome to another well-lubricated episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we read the young adult fiction of decades past to see if they're still groovy, or if they're a real drag, man. On alternate episodes, we stick to novels written in the last decade or so. My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the only man to eat a discreto burrito and not have it repeato, Keith Rowe. Hello. <laughs> I just got it. <laughs> the golden voice to which we swoon, the silky Patrick Moon. Hi. And colourful in garb, personality and language, our very own Brie. I'm not that bad. <laughs> if you could just keep the colourful language to a minimum this time around, Brie, that would be much appreciated. <laughs> and off air too, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> this episode, we're digging that 60s vibe in S.E. Hinton's tough little novel, The Outsiders. But before switchblades, hair grease and mustangs are unleashed upon an unsuspecting listener, a warning. This episode of Seeking Tumnus will contain spoilers. If you're like me and had not previously read this book, then I implore you to stop this episode right now, head to your nearest library, whether brick and mortar or virtual, and get yourself a copy. It's not a long book, and despite the writing starting more than 50 years ago, it still holds a place on many a school curriculum. Now, if you're such a delinquent, juvenile or otherwise, that you haven't read it and are still listening, then I offer no apologies for the fact that we will spoil this coming-of-age, groundbreaking, category-defining, thought-provoking piece of young adult fiction. (laughs) Jeez, you're selling it early, Keith. (laughs) (laughs) We'll probably also call each other silly names, talk about the 1983 movie, the 2005 recut, and wax lyrical about hairstyles. And now, let's hear from Brie with page one. When I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house, I had only two things on my mind. Paul Newman and a ride home. I was wishing I looked like Paul Newman. He looks tough and I don't. But I guess my own looks aren't so bad. I have light brown, almost red hair and greenish grey eyes. I wish they were more grey because I hate most guys that have green eyes, but I have to be content with what I have. My hair is longer than a lot of boys wear theirs, squared off in back and long at the front and sides. But I am a greaser and most of my neighbourhood rarely bothers to get a haircut. Besides, I look better with long hair. I had a long walk home and no company, but I usually loan it anyway for no reason except that I like to watch movies undisturbed so I can get into them and live them with the actors. When I see a movie with someone, it's kind of uncomfortable, like having someone read your book over your shoulder. I'm different that way. I mean, my second oldest brother, Soda, who was 16 going on 17, never cracks a book at all, and my oldest brother, Daryl, who we call Darry, works too long and hard to be interested in a story or drawing a picture, so I'm not like them. And nobody in our gang digs movies and books the way I do. For a while there, I thought I was the only person in the world that did, so I loaned it. Excellent work. Thanks, Bree. Keith, what were your impressions of that intro? Yeah, I really like that introduction. There's sort of a few things there that I can personally relate to. Your long, greasy hair. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> once upon a time. It's always good when you start off with a character that you have some connection to and that's what we have here, so I was liking it already. Pat, how about yourself? Yeah, I disagree. I thought that was a really <laughs> sloppy, really crappy start to the book. It reads like something that someone in high school wrote and that is accurate because it was something that someone in high school wrote. But that description of the narrator and that kind of thing, it's like the, the writing habits that you ditch as soon as you're 18 years old. It's just, it's bad writing. It's bad form. I don't know why they kept it in. It turned me off immediately. The narrator then went sort of page two, page three into giving detailed physical descriptions of all of the other characters as well. It's just tedious. But otherwise, it, it harked back to a, a certain time it definitely had a bit of a vibe going for it but yeah not much moved what about you laurie i agree with you patrick it felt to me a little bit like i don't know like that first letter you write to your pen pal (laughs) just sort of describing yourself and it was just yeah a bit mm, bit shit (laughs) excuse me the language (laughs) (laughs) yeah i just don't think it was very evolved as a writer and obviously the writer was young, but I would have thought by 15, 16, you would have ditched that already as well. So You got high standards. Yeah, seriously. I think those, that first couple of <laughs> sentences, uh, I think they're quite good. When I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house, I had only two things on my mind, Paul Newman and a ride home. I just think that's kind of quirky and fun and it immediately sets a time and a tone, which is a good start. Admittedly, the descriptions do kind of get to me, but that that first couple of phrases I think is quite good. And I am interested in finding out more about the neighbourhood. What is a greaser exactly? They mention a gang. That's kind of enough for me. There's a huge bit of context that's missing when you read it as page one that we won't jump to just yet because it's a huge spoiler, but it will all make sense a bit later on if you haven't read the book. I agree, Bree. That first sentence is a real cracker and finding out about the, the gang members, that's going to be great. But, yeah, just the description of his own hair and <laughs> whether he likes his eye colour. And- Once you know that it's written by a 15-slash-16-year-old girl, it does give that more context as well. But still, there's mm. that missing piece that we'll get to later. Yeah, but I, I don't pick up books that are like, my dad went to the shop and he <laughs> said it was great and I go, this is a crap book, but... Apparently, it's written by a five-year-old, so that it really increases my enjoyment. (laughs) That's true. There's an objective bar that you have to meet. It doesn't matter who you are, when you wrote it. And it just smacks of that. I looked in the mirror and I saw my pale blue eyes and sallow skin and thought, what boys would ever want to be with me? That kind of like it's, it's that really cheap storytelling that everybody starts out doing. And everybody lets go of at a certain point because it sucks. And look, the first chapter does continue on like that. Like I had to choose where to end it because then it keeps on going, describing his brothers and et cetera, et cetera. In that I agree in that you can find out about the characters through the story without being told everything about them. But there are things that I am attracted to in the opening two pages. Long greasy hair? <laughs> um... <laughs> What a 90s kid. (laughs) All right, well, a snapshot of the plot is in order then. Our ridiculously named protagonist, Pony Boy, no, really, Curtis, narrowly avoids an arse-whooping, or worse, from the socias, the well-to-do, tan-panted, turtle-necked, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, little Trump voters, (coughs) I mean bastards, from the other richer side of town. 
He's rescued by his rough and tough, slick-haired greaser friends and family, and it sets the stage in 1965 Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the war between the poor but proud greasers, with their oiled-up hair and tight black t-shirts, and the no less violent rich kids, has been waging for some time. Ponyboy lives with his equally stupidly named brother Sodapop and eldest brother Daryl, who A looks after and financially supports the two younger brothers, and B, was named before their dead parents hit the bong that resulted in such silly names for his siblings. I was going to say, do you feel like Daryl got the short end of the stick or sort of a (laughs) benefit? (laughs) Ponyboy, Soda Pop and Darry are friends with a few tough kids, including Dallas Dally Winston, the hardest of the greasers, who lived on the streets of New York for three years and isn't afraid to carry a knife or pack heat, but has had a rough life. Keith Two-Bit Matthews, a smart-mouthed shoplifter extraordinaire. Steve Handel. Randall. (laughs) Soda Pop's bestie. And Johnny Cade. Ponyboy's bestie, victim of a brutal beating by the socias in recent times. Now, things really kick off when Ponyboy and co. go to the movies and meet a pair of soch girls <laughs> that, after some verbal jousting, they actually get along with. They begin to walk them home. The girls' boyfriends appear, and violence almost ensues. Jerry, one of the girls, tactfully de-escalates, but not long afterwards, Ponyboy and Johnny are caught alone by the preppy bastards and the already traumatised Johnny Cade stabs and kills one of the socias to prevent them from drowning Ponyboy. On advice from their crim buddy, Dallas, they skip town, hole up in a church, eat more spam than a Monty Python song, and are about to return home to face the music when their hideaway, an abandoned church, goes up in flames. Some small kids are trapped inside. Sacre bleu! Pony and Johnny rescue them, but Johnny gets seriously burned. They are hailed as heroes and return home, much to the relief of Pony's brothers, but Johnny dies from his injuries shortly afterwards. Dallas, the hardest, toughest mofo of them all, is too disappointed in life at this point to continue, basically commits suicide by cop, and dies in the street. Finally, there's a massive fists-only brawl between the socials and greasers, indicating that nothing really has changed, though there are a few people on both sides that have begun to see the futility of street wall. Ponyboy is understandably pretty messed up by the whole bloody adventure, including a mild concussion, and the book ends with him being warned by his English teacher that failure is imminent. Only a personal experience story will give him enough credit to pass, so he scratches his chin sits down and starts writing about a boy named Ponyboy, exiting a theatre and beginning a dangerous walk home. <sighs> now, was that as epic as the Anne of Green Gables synopsis? <laughs> it was pretty long. It was, it was pretty marathon. <laughs> well done. Did I miss anything critical there? No, absolutely not. You didn't miss anything. <laughs> no, <laughs> every plot point was covered. <laughs> Some more emphasis could have been put on the fact that Johnny killed the Soch that had badly beaten him previously ah, yes. to the point where he couldn't really remember and was having these flashbacks and, and whatnot about the incident. I tell you what, I did appreciate learning what baloney is. Is it really spam? Thanks for that. Without your synopsis, I would never have known. <laughs> I don't think it is spam. Isn't it? I don't know. I think so. I don't think it's spam. It's some sort of um, processed meat though, but not spam. Oh, I thought it was canned meat that they were getting into. Yeah, same difference. Processed meat, candy. It's a a Bologna sausage. 
Hmm. Oh, man. A large smoked sausage of beef, veal, and pork. Keith, this was your choice this episode. What drew you to The Outsiders? So I went a really long way to get to The Outsiders, but I won't bore everyone with that story apart from saying that I tried desperately to shoehorn in some Stephen King and it was a miserable failure. (laughs) I've already fessed up in the spoiler to not having read this, but I was peripherally aware of it, so I wanted to read it. And this was the perfect opportunity to tick it off the list, but also to do it in a way that allows me to talk about it with some friends of mine in this really good podcast that you should listen to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is almost a classification-defining book because it's written by a young adult, specifically for young adults, without any condescension. (laughs) Without any (laughs) condescension or manufactured (laughs) sincerity. In contrast to something like The Catcher in the Rye, which was also a coming-of-age novel, but that was written by a 30-year-old for an adult audience and found its way into some estimations of young adult fictions. The Outsiders, on the other hand, doesn't need to do that. It was born into young adult fiction in a way that's forever changed the category. It's true young adult fiction in every sense. We can safely apportion some of the credit for the continuing trend of advancement and diversity in young adult fiction to Hinton who portrayed a world that she was familiar with rather than falling back on stereotypes and by-the-numbers love stories. So I really wanted to read this. It's not the first of its kind being young adult fiction, but as I've said, it was almost genre-redefining. Young adult fiction typically wasn't so real, so vivid and in-your-face. It didn't have the violence and the dysfunction that we see here and that she had witnessed in her own life and was telling a story that she felt needed to be told. And it's also a popular movie adaptation, and these days I really like to do a compare and contrast after reading a book. So that's how we got to The Outsiders. Why don't we find out what we all thought about it? How about Patrick first? So this book was... Well, it's difficult to define for me, I think, what I thought about it. I thought there were strong ups and there were definitely some low lows. Mostly stylistically, like I talked about before, I felt like it was a book that seemed a little bit lost at times. It didn't quite know where it wanted to be. And when it did know where it wanted to be, I don't think it quite pulled off the gravity of the narrative in the way that it was written. The style wasn't able to keep up with the themes, which which were great. I, I liked that there was that element of violence and darkness because that's something I enjoy across all the media I consume, even when it's that young adult fiction. I think it's important for kids to have an idea about the darker side of the world, about violence and sex and drugs and all of those things that people are quite scared of introducing into the relatively pure worlds of their children. And this book really didn't flinch from that. It talked about gang violence with gangs that I felt were unfortunately quite cliched and caricatured. They were not very interesting in and of themselves. I kind of had visions of all the guys from Greece punching on with like a crew from Mean Girls or something. They were just (laughs) really... Very good description. (laughs) (laughs) They they were very stereotyped and there was a lot of that element of, oh, I'm a greaser, so what? This just the greaser life, man. Like I can't help it that I'm just a greaser. And It didn't really ring that true for me, but it was buoyed by the characters involved. The names and things initially I thought were just absolutely absurd. Ponyboy and Soda Pop and Darry and Dally to just confuse matters even more. (laughs) And 
ultimately, though, these they were very distinct characters. They were fleshed out really nicely. The names gave them a certain charm, I think. And they really had a bit of a life in the story. And I enjoyed that component of it. I just don't know. I'm, I'm going to keep going back and forth and listing point after point. And, and really, all I can say is that it was a movable feast and a mixed kind of reception on my part. Really difficult to, to pin it down in any firm kind of way. What about you, Bree? I think the low point for me was the constant action, but then maybe that's the kind of thing that will get teenage boys to read. That's kind of what kept going through my head was there's this action-packed book with characters that are really easy to identify with on both sides, I would say. I can certainly see some of my schoolgirl friends in the Cherry Valances of the world and some of those more bad boy types from the local high school as opposed to the local private boys' school in the Greases and the Socias. And your co-hosts. And my co-hosts, yes. (laughs) uh, You do all have very greasy hair. (laughs) For those of you who've kept your hair. (laughs) I think just on that that point of the constant action, I think not only is that the way that young people potentially want to read things, maybe debatable, Mm. but it's certainly the way that young people feel that they have to write things, which again is a sign of that youth immaturity in the writing, I think, where each scene that you plod out, you say to yourself, what's happening in this scene? And if it's not action, if it's not something that's really driving the plot forward from a plot-focused point of view rather than a character-focused point of view, then you feel that it's useless. However, the characters, you're right, they did anchor this. They did, I think you used the word boy, and they really, they were distinct. They were interesting. They all had interesting backstories, and each of them had elements that you could relate to, I felt. The other thing that I felt kept this going for me was the language. It it drew me in. And I think that for setting a novel in a particular era and even being able to read that now when it was written in the 60s, that helps to keep it going. I don't know how you guys felt about the language. I felt that the 60s were fairly well evoked. I was just sort of pondering then as you asked that question how I would try and capture the current decade. Mm. I very much felt placed in the 60s. Totes, totes agree. Amaze balls. <laughs> Not just the haircuts and their their um, their dress sense and all that kind of stuff, but the mustangs and the sneaking into the back of the drive-in theater. And I mean, there were a few, obviously, a few cliches in there, but you know, I guess that's what they knew. So at the time, they weren't cliches. It was just as it was, right? Yeah, yeah. But I found beauty in the simplicity of the writing and. I apportioned the simplicity not only to the age of the writer but more so to the age of the character who's telling the story. If I hadn't known that it was written by a 15-slash-16-year-old, it wouldn't have changed that, I don't think. The other thing, I mean, the concept of the story is quite well known to modern audiences. I'm not sure whether there were similar stories beforehand. Gang warfare, the battlers and the financially privileged, the wrong side of town. In some ways it sounds a bit like Greece, which came after. And it also sounds a little bit like West Side Story, which I'm pretty sure was before. The other thing that happened for me was that I kept asking if this kind of warfare, like whether it really happened as described. Did groups of friends loosely form into gangs, associate themselves as gangs, call themselves gangs, walk around with blades because they were never sure whether they'd be able to get home? Or was it really a, a dramatisation of that? Well, that sort of thing still happens. There's probably some exaggeration in there, but it's based on people that she directly associated with. It wasn't character for character the same, but it was inspired by a gang effectively that she hung out with when she was 
at that age. Mm. She was from the wrong side of the tracks. This is all stuff that's from her life. It's not mm. some imagined world of a privileged youth. This is real. That's how I took it. The other one is that Cherry says at one point that the two groups aren't that different, that reality isn't really always what it seems. So what that intimated to me was that the socials have pressure on them from their parents, and I think she alludes to Bob having pressure from his family, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the, the problem that I have with that is still the same. It doesn't change the fact that privilege begets privilege in most of society and it hasn't really changed. It's probably been made a little bit easier now, but I still think that this this concept of you come from a very well-off family and you're given all of these breaks and it's much easier than if you've come from a lower socioeconomic background and you've had to battle for everything right through. And I kind of felt that pressure from parents isn't exactly the same as having an abusive and alcoholic parent and another one with no parents at all. So I found that a little bit twee and irritating and I, maybe that was the point. <laughs> The perceived disagreement between the gang obviously gets real when Johnny stabs Bob to death. The ensuing action seems a little bit unrealistic, that whole hideout, the getting on the train, the church that they're hiding in catching on fire, and then the boys being given this chance at redemption. I understand why it's in the story. They save these children from the burning building and are hailed as heroes and I guess that also goes to show that we, no matter what our background, have the same value system and you just do what you have to in that situation. Does that mean that you're a victim of your circumstance? You're right, but I think they do sort of question whether everyone would have acted the same way. Certainly, Dally spells out that he wouldn't have and Randy as well the same. So, Mm. it shows that it's not necessarily based on where you're from. It's the the true metal of your character that comes out in situations like that. Mm. Which is more or less what you were saying, I think. I think I was saying that I expect that anybody would react in the same way in that situation. Well, no no one else did and there was plenty of others there. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, the adults present certainly didn't and those other kids Mm. sort of said, oh, we're not sure we would have acted the same way. And Dally afterwards, after Johnny dies, says, oh, this is what you get for helping people. So, Mm. yeah. So ultimately I feel like teenage boys would respond quite well to this book. The imagery of, especially of breaking all the rules, drinking, smoking, being out late, flaunting authority, implies a freedom and an independence that they're looking for, but obviously it comes at a cost. Laurie, what did you think? Well, in the company of books written by teenagers, this has to be in the top ten, surely. Like, the only other ones I could think of off the top of my head were Anne Frank's Diary and Aragon. (laughs) And I haven't read Aragon because I heard it was a bit... It's meant to be awful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, I mean, this is excellent work for someone of that age. Even as old as I am now, I don't think I could write a cohesive book that's going to be read by half as many people or a quarter <laughs> of as many people or a million yeah. as many people. I think Keep Patrick going. could read it. He'd say, sorry, Laurie, that's a bit shit. I'll put it away. <laughs> so, Did you find this? Did you write this as a 12-year-old and you found it today? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's great work for someone that age. It's it's grim. There's no sugarcoat to the book with the kids smoking and the violence and the grim domestic violence in, in appearance and one of the characters. I think it's I think it's a damn good attempt in terms of characters and themes and narrative. But like you were saying, Patrick, it lacks the sophistication of adult writing. Even though there were some good themes of 
loyalty and honor and class conflict and the universality of humanity. Yeah, it just lacked the sophistication of writing. And I think it was pretty evident when reading. That being said, I think it could be pretty inspirational for a mid-teenager to read, particularly if they've got aspirations of being a writer. It was a pretty gargantuan effort. And as I was reading some facts about the book, I saw that this is still one of the most challenged books in the US library system, I think it was. And by challenged, it means that people keep asking for this book to be taken off the shelf or taken out of the curriculum because of all the fairly adult themes in there and things like kids smoking. I think it offends a lot of people. I think banning it would be stupid. These kind of books are a look back into the past. And although I've said probably the opposite to what I'm about to say because of, I guess, racist commentary, I think those other kinds of point in time references to violence and the way kids smoked and all that kind of thing. It's good to have those to look back on and reflect upon, even if they don't reflect society's current values. You need to be able to look back and evaluate them and they're part of that world that no longer exists. So I think it's important to keep them. I don't understand the argument that fiction should reflect an ideal moral world. It, it, it seems absolutely bizarre to me that that's what people expect from their invented universes is, is that yeah. they, they be a biblical representation of the way that people should act. Like everybody just wants to read novels about people hugging each other and being good friends. <laughs> it, it doesn't make sense to me at all. It's absolutely stupid. It's an art. And if it's not challenging, then it's not doing its job, right? I think it ends with a weak cliche, though, the protagonist getting to the end of the story and deciding... To write the story? Yeah. <laughs> that sort of paradoxical thing. <sighs> yeah. It's just horrid. You could have ended with the stay gold and just left it at that. That last few paragraphs or chapter or whatever it was just felt tacked on and, and weak. Anything that includes a little bit of Robert Frost gets bonus points from me <laughs> by default. <laughs> if you had stopped there, you wouldn't have got the letter that was in Gone with the Wind, for one thing. I have to say, though, that's, I think, the fourth time we've had that cliche in a book, and this is by far the oldest of those books that we've read. Well, yeah, I actually wondered whether or not that was the first time it had ever been done, so maybe it wasn't a cliche. (laughs) I'm sure it wasn't the first time, but I think it was done quite well here because it, it all ties you back to the beginning and the style of writing. So any of the simplistic sins that you guys have accused the book of committing, you can forgive based on the notion that this was written by a 14 year old. Well, that's exactly what I said I wouldn't do. <laughs> do you think that's the author doing that or do you think that's an editor throwing that in as a clever? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen it, it, it written anywhere as to the reason for it. But I think certainly it's it's the sort of thing that isn't out of the realms of possibility to a 15 slash 16-year-old actual author to have dreamed up. I feel like it's more likely to come from a 15 or 16-year-old author probably. Who doesn't know how to finish the story. Or Roald Dahl or John Connolly. <laughs> or David Walliams. Walliams. Oh, all right. Or Walliams. Walliams. <laughs> I don't know that there was any kind of resolution to the book. Did you walk away from reading this book with a sense of hope for the characters at all? Yeah, I did. I think the resolution was the realisation that despite being put into these categories, it wasn't the defining part of people's character and Ponyboy certainly on his own could see beyond that. I don't know whether others had come to that realisation as yet, but Ponyboy certainly had. But it didn't really affect change in his life. Like, I didn't feel that anything was going to change as a result. I agree. 
I think it would have. He he was inspired not only by his own realizations, but the the advice that Johnny left him with to stay gold and and that's to keep keep positive, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a way out. On top of the stay gold in the letter that he wrote, it was basically saying you can get out of this, Pony Boy. You've got the the ability to do that. I feel like Pony Boy was possibly the only one that was going to be redeemed through this, or to to get some sort of resolution to be able to challenge himself to work harder and become what he wanted to become, whatever that was. I feel like the rest of them were just, I won't say doomed because certainly Soda Pop, his brother, was content with his lot in life. He didn't have his girlfriend, but you can only assume that he would be able to find somebody else as very attractive according to the novel and the movie. And Mm -hmm. the others you just sort of feel are just going to plod through life. And the one you feel the most sorry for is Daryl, who's given up everything to look after his two younger brothers so that they didn't have to go to a boy's home when their parents died. And he's put out as this character who's been a sports star and has been very intelligent, yet he's chosen to sacrifice everything so that Ponyboy can do better. Exactly. He's only 20 years old in this he's not 40 and winding down in life or anything like that he's 20 years old i certainly see a way out for darry mm. i don't know you guys are you guys are overly negative i don't know what what the go is but <laughs> seriously <laughs> it's it's up to you how you interpret it but i choose to take it on an uptick rather than that's their lot in life and too bad so sad see you later there's no way out that's certainly not the case and it isn't the case even in today's society Patrick, before we move on, did you walk away feeling hopeful and positive about the character's future? Uh, no, not necessarily. Probably more on a, a slightly down note because that was certainly the way that the character arc for Ponyboy was progressing as it moved along was that he was becoming more of the uh, Dally-esque type character where he was hardening up a little bit towards the violence even though he he, he f- felt that emotion within himself and that vulnerability and all those sorts of things. He was really emulating the way that Dally had coped with the hardness of the world and that he pushed it aside, he pretended he didn't feel anything, he became part of the world and that was certainly the path that, that Ponyboy was on by the end of the book, I think. And that, that was kind of offset a little bit by the letters that he had received from the letter that he had received from Johnny and, you know, the comment that he should stay gold and retain that youthful naivete, that outlook which had differentiated him from the gang life to date. But I don't think you ever necessarily get the impression that that has landed, it hasn't found its mark, other than perhaps the fact that he starts, you know, writing this narrative and thinking more about the lives of the people that have come before him at the end of the book. So maybe maybe a twinkle of hope there, but he was certainly not on the, the right path for the concluding portions of the book. I wondered whether the stay gold comment came much like the letter to Dally came just too late. Yeah, I feel that way too. Like the the events that had put him on this path to becoming hardened, to becoming someone who was inured to all this violence had already taken place. He, he had already lost a little bit of that sheen, which was something that may have been present in greater quantity before. I feel like maybe a little bit too little, too late. That's pretty well said, Pat, because I had those same worries as well prior to the the writing of of the story at the end. I thought, oh, here we go. Now he's on that track and all the positivity we had from his character early on had gone when he was bombing out in school and had lost some of the character-defining elements he had earlier. I was really worried and I was almost depressed about the fact that this kid had just burned out his chances at getting out until he wrote that theme for school. 
So I guess I just place more emphasis on the importance of that. Hmm. All right, Keith, do you want to wrap us up with your thoughts? Yeah, I've probably let them all slip already. (laughs) I enjoyed this more than the rest of you from the sounds of it by quite a long way. I pretty much love this book. I thought the pacing was good. The way that it leaked information about characters, I thought that was pretty realistic for the way in which a 14-year-old would divulge information, like only when it's relevant to what's being said. At one point, Ponyboy has to run for a reason. He mentions, oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm, I run track for school. It's believable that it would come out in that way. It wasn't structured perfectly. And like I said before, I found beauty in the simplicity of the writing. I've talked about this a lot with other books, but I'm a sucker for characters. And Hinton is on the record as saying she writes her characters and then forms a story around them as opposed to filling out a plot with characters and that was right in my wheelhouse, so I enjoyed the characters in this book. I could tell that Hinton loved her characters. I think she related to Ponyboy. She's a big horse fan, so that's probably where Pony came from. It's a terrible name. And she likes boys, so that's probably where Boy came from. Their characters did have a slightly stereotypical cinematic grandness to their fibres. I don't suggest that you can begrudge that in books because they have to have an exaggerated look at life, otherwise they're just dull and not interesting. And I've talked about this a little bit, but knowing it was written by a 15, 16-year-old girl did colour my reading, but I don't think it was in a bad way. It made me seek answers to questions about decisions in the book about the writing. I thought the book had quite a bit of clarity and depth to it, particularly given the author. And I liked the reveal at the end. I think of the ones we've seen so far, it worked the best because it not only tied things up, but it also gave you that hope or gave me that hope that I was lacking in the chapters prior. I like that it covered the family, the friendship and group dynamics. They're all central to the plot and covered things like sacrifice and thought she did quite well at covering some pretty powerful themes. Certainly well enough for it to be hugely popular and in print constantly since it first came out almost 50 years ago. Yeah, that's my thoughts. Good book. I like what you said about them having some kind of a cinematic movie style kind of quality. I kind of wrote down here somewhere that I I felt like there was a lot of deep themes, but they had this movie soft light over the top. They seemed to make light of some of those deep events, but maybe that's just to keep the story moving. Yeah, there's going to be a bit of naivety. So things would be played up and down as necessary for the story. But yeah, I think you can forgive it in books. Well, I can. Just a show of hands, who watched the movie from 1980-something? I looked it up on IMDb and holy shit, that cast. Yeah. Wow. There's some big names, that's for sure. Do you want to run through some of them? Emilio Estevez, Matt Dillon, Patrick Swayze. Rob Lowe, Tom Cruise. Rob Lowe, delicious. Patrick Swayze. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, there were some big names. And director, of course. Francis Ford. Exactly. And a whole bunch of his family as part of the crew. So, yeah, really big names, big director name. What could go wrong? Laurie, why don't you tell us what could go wrong? (laughs) I'll be interested to know. Did something go wrong? Well, two things went wrong. One, it was just like a meat market. The boys had their tops off every second they could get to show their six packs, their 12 packs. Oh, it was amazing. (laughs) They weren't six or 12 packs. They were Teenage boys. You sound more impressed than turned off. Mm. Well, I just, I couldn't understand. Like, I, I didn't really read that from the book where they were sort of getting half naked all the time. I mean, there were some, these these boys or men, I think they were actually, most of them were men at the time of the recording. They just had like this extremely well-crafted bodies. I'm like, come on, some greasy, underfed 
well, greaser. It's not going to have bodies like that. So I don't know why they played it up unless they were trying to drag in the girls. I don't think they were necessarily underfed. And they did actually cast age-specific characters in this, unlike most movies these days and even probably in those days. I think Francis Ford Coppola was very particular about having people the right age in the roles. The prime problem with the movie, though, was the really shit acting. Like, it was pretty wooden and horrible, I thought, with the exception of Patrick Swayze, who doesn't really get that much of a run as the older brother, Darry, so, or Daryl. I just thought the acting was abominable. Bree, did you think along the same lines or you found it tolerable? Well, I couldn't actually keep my eyes on the film for the entire time that it was on, so I agree. It was a bit, it was jarring, but you're throwing these young boys at it. There was a lot of strutting and... I don't know. Maybe I forgive it because it definitely had that 1983 feel to it. With was that Laurie standing up and strutting around the room, or was it actually in the film? (laughs) Check out my one pack. (laughs) I wanted more from Francis Ford Coppola, to be honest. There were a couple of moments that I quite liked, particularly when Johnny and Pony Boy are bathed in golden light. I thought that was kind of a sweet excerpt, but. Oh, yeah, the rest of it was a bit... Oh, gosh, the worst was probably Diane Lane as Cherry Valance. I just thought that was awful. Really? Yes. I thought she was okay, actually. Didn't think the reading of the poem in that light was particularly well done either. No, I didn't like that at all. The reading of the poem was awful, but that moment where they're standing there bathed in golden light, just having this kind of moment where they're reflecting and looking forward and looking up, up to something, I felt that was quite nice. Hmm. I just thought that particular, I mean, that scene, if if the poem had been read. Poem. Well, this poem. Fine. The poem. <laughs> if the poem had been read well, then the scene would have been 1,000 times better. No, they really could have coached him for that particular scene. Uh, the poem was particularly poor for something that is so central to the story. Keith? Yeah, I didn't think the acting was as bad as... You've made out there. It wasn't great. Some of them were better than others. I thought Ralph Macchio was okay. Ponyboy, can't remember the actor's name, was reasonable. As you said, Patrick Swayze was quite good. Matt Dillon was okay. It's, there's a fine sort of line between serious and stilted, I think, and some of them uh, crossed it a little bit on occasion. I forgot about Matt Dillon. He was supposed to be Dally, who in the book is really hard and threatening and kid that's had a rough life and is rough as a result and I didn't feel any of that from Matt Dillon he was more of a, a jokester and he got a bit bit rude when talking to Cherry Valance but I didn't feel that undercurrent yeah that sense of danger about him being present even for his friends so him most of all I probably felt most let down it makes me wonder whether that was intentional and because you're seeing it through the eyes of a 14 year old he wasn't actually as bad as was made out Mm, maybe. But yeah, it wasn't up to scratch with the with the book, which movies seldom are. <laughs> That's true. Someone should remake it. I think it does – I think it could stand up well. Just on the book, did any of you guys read uh, Socias as Socks? Yes, the entire way through until the movie. <laughs> I looked it up after I finished the book, but for me it was Socks, the entirety of the book rather than Socias, which just makes more sense to me. I, I did the same when I was reading the book. It was only, yeah, the movie that – made me question the existence of the socks. <laughs> I've got some interesting trivia about the movie. When they had cast the boys, they actually separated them where they were staying 
and the socias got the the nicer rooms and could get room service, whereas the greasers were stuck in the less appealing rooms, had poorer scripts and poorer access to hotel services. So, and acting coaches. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think I don't think the socias were any better on that front. <laughs> sort of like the the Stanford prison experiment in film form. <laughs> One of my comments to Laurie about when I was watching the film was that it felt like I was watching that version of Batman and Robin where every five seconds they during the rumble, the big rumble that they're having, they're all being decked and you're like, you just expect kapow and blam to oh, keep yeah. popping up on the screen. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty ham-fisted uh, action scene. It was not very believable. It was WWE-style fighting in mud. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there was there were lots of swings and wide, wide misses that they reacted to. It was pretty yeah, funny. If you, if you had a different soundtrack, it would have been almost comedy. Yeah, right. But I did like the cameo from S.E. Hinton. That was nice. No, I didn't even note it during the movie. She was the nurse in Dally's room ah. that he, he told to get out because she had turned his stomach. Right, right. Oh, did we mention Tom Cruise? I, I mentioned Tom Cruise. Yeah, old One Tooth shows up at one stage. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, he shows up a couple of times, and I think both times he's on screen, he Man, the the Scientology assassination squad is going to come and take you out. <laughs> he does like a a backflip or a forward flip off the car, and uh, and both times he does it, he he doesn't appear to stick the landing. He sort of disappears <laughs> off and then pops back up like he did a. It was Patrick Swayze that did the first one, and Patrick Swayze apparently taught. Tom Cruise had to do that on the set. Now, the day of filming, apparently Tom Cruise wasn't feeling very well and S.E. Hinton suggested that if he threw up, he might feel better. So she took him to the, the catering cart and had him eat raw egg until he threw up and then <laughs> he stuck the landing apparently. As as you pointed out, Laurie, you can't see it there, but he, he walked away immediately after so there was no, no damage done. I thought he landed in a, almost like a push-ups position instead of on his feet. You definitely watch the 83 version because in the 2005 recut, Tom Cruise is in it quite a bit and they spend a lot more time establishing the characters, which makes it a, a fair bit better than it would be without those scenes, I think. Did they re-inject the scene that Rob Lowe boohooed about? Did they cut one of his scenes without telling him. It wasn't until the movie came out that he realised and he was a bit upset about it. And he said, I'm not sure. It changed the way he sort of interacted with Hollywood thereafter. So Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen the 83 version, so I can't really say, but there was a, a fair bit of soda in there, so maybe it is back in that one. Hmm, right. Scoring time? Should we mention Supernatural? <laughs> the TV program. Why? Because it's phenomenal. <laughs> Susan Eloise. <laughs> 15 series. Susan Eloise Hinton is a huge fan of the show and she apparently visits the set twice a year where she's kind of a muse. Oh, really? Yeah. So That, that boggles my mind. I mean, <laughs> Supernatural couldn't be further from the sort of content of The Outsiders other than maybe on the film aspect. I mean, Supernatural also features men with ridiculous abs. So <laughs> there are some parallels there, I suppose. Maybe that's it. Because she says there's tons of fans of my work that are fans of the show, remarking that there's some kind of connection going on there. It might be the abs and the, the semi-clothed men. Yeah, I mean, Supernatural is one of the best shows currently on TV. That's all I'm going to say. One of the best shows? One really? One of the best shows currently on TV. I'm not ashamed to make that statement. 
has been yeah. one of the best shows for the past 12 years. Mm. The, the quality never drops. No, I only watched three or four episodes, or maybe five or six, and I don't recall it being that great. I mean, I've I've watched about 250 episodes, and it is great. So who <laughs> is right, more authoritarian? Right. I, I bow to your, uh, your experience there. <laughs> I know every groove of those abs <laughs> intimately. <laughs> All right, well, with that in mind, let's move to scoring with Keith. <laughs> so, yes, I'll just put my shirt back on. Uh, <laughs> for one point, was this book Dally, rough, unfinished, and ultimately died a painful death? No. Was it two, two-bit, wisecracking and sometimes entertaining but falling short on substance? Was it three, soda pop, pretty but limited and lacking book smarts? Was it four, Darry, against the odds, making the most of what it's got, sacrificial and selfless? Or was it five, Ponyboy, insightful and wise, staying gold? I'll go first. I think it was a three for me. There were definitely some high points of themes and it, it brought that consistent darkness, I suppose, <laughs> that I enjoy, which makes me sound a little bit like a sociopath. <laughs> But it was let down in the execution. It's a it's a three. What about you, Bree? Look, I've actually been oscillating between a three and a four, and I think I don't know if you've talked me down, <laughs> or I have to save my fours for other things. For me, this is a three and a half. So we'll, when I rate it on Goodreads, it'll go down to a three. I think that the strength of the characters and the way that those are developed throughout the book really do well for me. I'm frustrated, I think, by the continued action just to move the story along, but I like what it does with the characters. Laurie? I can't believe you both gave it a three because I'm giving it a three. (laughs) Consistency. Yeah. I enjoyed reading it. It wasn't amazing, but it was a pretty impressive feat for a 15-year-old, and I think 15, 16-year-olds would get something out of it. But for an adult, it's read once and move right along kind of book. Keith? You're all mad. It's an easy four. It's probably better than a four, but it's an easy four for me now because you've depressed me with your, <laughs> with your ignorance. <laughs> it's, it's not only a good book for a 16-year-old, it's a good book for anyone, and this has connected with so many readers out there, and I'm one of them. And thank you, S.E. Hinton, <laughs> for writing this. I will read it again. Great people like this book. The best people. (laughs) They tell me they love this book. I think it would be great for teenage boys. I think it would be great for like 14, 15-year-olds who are coming into that age. They. I think they might find it a bit naff. Do you reckon? No. Yeah. I think they'd enjoy it. The gangs were were daft. Yeah, I think you're overstating the fact that it's for teenage boys. I don't think it is at all. I think it's for anyone. It's for any teenage uh, young adult. It's for anyone that loves great fiction, guys. <laughs> it's for anyone who's a fan of characters. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. But it is, I mean, teenage boys are notoriously difficult to get to read books. And if they're going to read something, surely this is one of the ones. Just give them something about anthropomorphic animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it glorifies this sort of violence and this outsider delinquent life at all. No, well, nobody said it did. That was never anyone's argument. I don't know if that's where you're suggesting it has an appeal to teenage boys, but 
No, no. It's just the language makes it really accessible. The themes are somewhat easy to identify with. You can understand how the characters come to develop. They're interesting guys. It's a lot about friendship groups and banding together and relying on each other and relying on your family. I just think it's stuff that would appeal. Yeah, I think that's equally appealing to both boys and girls. So. Sorry, I'm not being specific. I, I know I said boys, but that's mainly because they're that notorious group that's difficult to get to read things and enjoy things. I agree. I'm not excluding girls either. I, I agree that that would be interesting to them. But, yeah, I just think for that particular group, it's a good one. The only people who wouldn't like this book are idiots, right, Keith? <laughs> 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 That's not at all what I'm saying. <laughs> Dumbass. <laughs> Did you give it oh an easy four? That was yeah. that was where you landed? Yep, that's where I landed. Okay. Well, with Keith having dazzled us with another brave choice, it's time to bid you adieu. Thanks for listening in. We hope that no matter where you are in the world, that you're safe, warm, and happy. Next episode, if you've been jonesing for more of that sweet, sweet fantasy, then I've got you, baby, because I'm bringing it back with best-selling author Joe Abercrombie's young adult epic, Half a King. Until then, just remember that if you lived in the 60s and people thought you were a little crude, then they are probably just talking about the stuff in your hair. And keep reading. I'm bringing fantasy back. Yeah. I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I bought it out at a wardrobe door But I, I'm still seeking tumble I'm still seeking tumble I, 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 so, for me, I, I, I was going to say that I was pondering your question too, Brie, but I was just stuffing my face with yogurt, so... 